0: Uh, good morning, everyone, and welcome. Uh, special welcome to our online guests. We are very glad that you are with us as well. Uh, just a couple things, just general things to say before um, we hit today's message. One of them is that um, one thing we should say: next week, Sunday night, is our AGM, and so if you're a member, uh, please remember to make time to come. And hopefully, we we'll have about an hour meeting uh, where we cover the church business and. Uh, vote on some things, and then we have some time for discussion and uh, set aside for that as well. So I invite you especially to that. Um, Let's just talk about the world for just a moment, just a moment. Um, I, many years ago, 2001, I think it was, I was in Israel uh, for a a brief tour, like a really short tour of time. And I was in the YMCA in Jerusalem, and I remember meeting an an Arab man um, who, and I, I, I had my I was ignorant, <laughs> I'm still ignorant in a lot of ways, but I was ignorant and I met him and I was shocked to find out that he was Christian because at that time I thought, of course, all Arabs are uh, Muslim, that's what I thought, and I was wrong about that. Um, and so it, it was a paradigm shift for me to realize these things, and I think it's maybe helpful for you to know there is an alliance church in Jerusalem and it's mostly Arab-Palestinian Christians. Um, so that as you pray... And as you reflect on the world at this time, uh, remember that we have brothers and sisters in both countries who are being harmed. Uh, And we must be Jesus people and not worldly people. So let me leave you that, and let's pray for Jesus' will to be done um, in the world at this time. So let me shift from that. Uh, we've just come out of a series on things that our church is for. I uh, talked about things, five things we're for, and uh, we're going to find a way to display these uh, prominently in their own way in our, um, in our foyer so we can read them regularly. That'll be nice. Uh, but as we finished the series, I had this kind of sense that we weren't done talking about the church yet. Um, I had actually shifted several, I don't usually shift a lot of times in my preaching plan, and I shifted two or three times, which is an unusual thing for me to do, uh, and finally said, you know what, we have to spend some more time just talking about what we do as a church, and so I want us for these next several weeks until, until Advent to talk about church matters, and I, there's, that's a play on words, right, matters of the church, but also the church matters, right, uh, and that's on purpose. And we're going to cover a number of different topics. We're going to talk about things like uh, service, and talk about faith as a family, and talk about what it means to be formed in discipleship. And today, we're going to talk about worship. Worship is the topic we're going to speak about today. Uh, There's lots to say, of course, about worship. This this book has a lot about worship within it. Uh, There are many different things I could say. I will not say all of them today. Uh, maybe next time. No, no, I won't say all of them. Um, If you've got your outline, it's deceptively full. We'll go quite quickly through a lot of those pieces. So um, if you're looking at it and thinking, oh my, don't worry, we'll move pretty quickly. So I think worship is a confusing idea. I think it's confusing. I don't think a lot of us know quite what worship is. And we can get at it a couple different ways. I could ask a question like, what God do you worship? I can ask you that question, and that is a question about your loyalty, right? Like the divinity, your loyalty, but it doesn't tell you what you do for worship. You could answer, well, I worship the Christian God. It doesn't tell you how you worship, or you could say, I worship Allah, but that doesn't necessarily tell you how you worship. You say, I worship Ganesh. It doesn't give you indications of what the worship looks like. It just tells you uh, the target of your worship. Um, We could talk about a different question. We could say, where do you worship, right? You can ask them where do you worship? And if you're a Christian, they'll say, well, I worship at this church here and there, something. It still doesn't tell you what worship looks like. It just gives you the location of where you perform your religious deeds. That's a little bit of a different thing. If the person is thoroughly secular and kind of hippie like them, man, I worship in nature, man. I'm out, right? I commune with the mountains. You'll hear great stuff like some Christians say that too, and you might want to ask them some questions about what they think about that. But neither of these really help us to understand what it is we're supposed to be doing, uh, how, how and what we do as, um, as a worshiping church. And I'm going to try and bring some clarity to the idea, um, but I want to speak about, before we speak about how. So we're going to talk about what worship is, and then we'll land on how we do it here at the church at the end. So here's some things I think what worship is for us. So number one, if you're filling in the blanks, I think worship is ingrained in humanity. It's ingrained It's a deep, deep part of our makeup, our psychology. And this might be controversial today, because I think a lot of people like to think that they don't don't worship anything. Their past worship is unnecessary for them. But for the vast majority of human history, almost all of it, humans have been religious. It's one of the things we're known by. We are religious beings. Uh, framed and shaped by religious, we are aware of a reality above us, something greater, something more powerful, something that we want some kind of connection with and we want to interact somehow. Um, That instinct towards something outside ourselves can be masked today, but it shows up especially in concerts, right? What happens at the concert? There's a performance. What do people do? They jump up, they throw their hands in the air, they praise, I hate to break it to you, but Swifties worship Taylor Swift. Okay, right? Beyond sights, I don't know if that's a word. They worship Beyoncé, right? And deadheads, well, they worship pot. No, they worship the Grateful Dead, right? There is, there's a, there's a real, that loyalty, that identity is shaping who they are, and it's, it's part, it's ingrained in humanity. We gather, we pay an offering, we throw up our hands to the deity, and we ask for their attention on Instagram, right? It's the whole cycle of, of prayer and worship that happens in the world. And everybody does it. Everybody worships. Um, Bob Dylan, i quoted him before, uh, you got to serve somebody. you got to serve somebody. Now, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. Uh, we're all going to have something because it's ingrained within us. And if we don't worship God or some sense of the spiritual, the divine, you're going to worship yourself. It's kind of what it comes down to. So, worship is this key expression of this implanted desire to reach beyond ourselves. It's part of our psychology. That's the first thing I want you to hear. Uh, Second, though, is that worship is sacrifice. Worship is going to be sacrifice. Now, throughout the Old Testament, whenever the nation of Israel gathers to worship, there's always a sacrifice that accompanies the worship. I mean, it's a bull or a sheep or a goat or a dove or a loaf of bread, right? There's always something burnt and offered in sacrifice to God. And throughout the ancient world especially, blood sacrifice is everywhere. It's always a constant part. In fact, as far as I understand it, the, the butchers in the ancient world were also the priests. You see? Like when you're killing the animal, you're also sacrificing it. And you are offered, you, there's, a, there's a priestly function involved anytime you're shedding blood. And so, this is a deeply, deeply ingrained part of our human history. And so, uh, this is the sense in which the impulse to worship shows up as the desire to make bargains with our deity, right? Typically, the offering of life uh, through blood. And the bargains keep getting more and more and more costly and costly, depending on what it is you want to get. And this is why, throughout human history, throughout absolutely, in every ancient culture, there's evidence of human sacrifice, right? Because at some point, the animals aren't good enough, and you're going to have to offer something more valuable. And on top of that, even worse, more than human sacrifice, there's typically child sacrifice. Because what's most valuable is your children, and you're trying to make blood offerings to your deity. And so in this respect, worship and offering, worship and sacrifice, they're going to be synonyms. They mean basically the same thing. Third thing to say about worship, again, we're speaking generally, but with reference to theology. Worship determines our destiny. Worship determines our destiny. tells you where you're going. Uh, A.W. Tozer writes these words. He says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. That's a beautiful phrase. We tend by a secret law of the soul, by some instinct within us, to move toward our mental image of God. How you think about God shapes the kind of person you are and who you're becoming. And I think Tozer's right. And he's backed up in Scripture. Let's look together for the first verses of Psalm 115, one of my favorite psalms. Psalm 115 begins like this. It'll be on the screen here. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth, Why should the nations cry, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Now we flip to the world. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Key verse, those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Now, the message of the psalm, and as it goes, I won't read the rest of the psalm. I encourage you to go through and read the rest of it later. If you worship dead matter, guess what you're going to become? Dead matter. Dead matter. Worthless, dumb, blind, deaf, uh, stupefied to the world. If you worship the living God, what will you become? Alive. You become what you worship. You're transformed by this target of your soul into something glorious or something hellish. Uh, Worship determines our destiny. So let me summarize summarize part of this. Worship is this uh, deeply ingrained part of our human psychology. It manifests in our desire to sacrifice and communicate with the deity, and it determines our identity. Worship is serious business. This is very serious stuff that we're doing together on a Sunday morning. So what does it mean for us as Christians? That was kind of general, but how do we as Christians worship as a church? Well, Let's uh, change the terms a little bit. In the first place, God is not interested in the sacrifice of animals. He's just not interested in blood sacrifice anymore. Look with me at Hosea chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. The key verses at the end, but I wanted to give you some context. God says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? Uh, Metaphor for northern Israel. What shall I do with you, O Judah? Southern Israel. For your loyalty is like a morning cloud, and like the dew which goes away early. In other words, the sun comes up and evaporates. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments are you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. When Jesus quotes this in the New Testament, he says, "I delight in mercy, not sacrifice. I want a heart that's right. I'm not interested in your bulls and your goats and your loaves of bread. That doesn't matter to me. I don't have a stomach that I need them to eat." I want something changed in you, God is saying. So God wants a change of our hearts. He doesn't want our stuff in that respect. Now, it's important for us to remember that as Christians, Jesus was the last blood sacrifice. He was it. All blood sacrifice ended with him at that time. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. Author of Hebrews says these words, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near So the law is inadequate to bring us to perfection. Verse 2, Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. The law didn't take care of the sin problem. But in those sacrifices there was a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's not possible for these things to happen. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, in quoting the Psalms, Sacrifice an offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. The author of Hebrews is laying out the fact that Jesus is the last sacrifice, that his blood is the last blood offered, that there's no more sacrifices required, and that we stand in the presence of God justified because of what Jesus did on our behalf. Sacrifice is over in that respect. Now there's something new. Hebrews 13, right at the end of this, says, 13 verses 15 and 16, there's been a change. Through him, Christ, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to him. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. It's no longer about blood, it's about something else. We offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. In fact, in worship, that's what I want you to hear, the church offers praise and thanksgiving to God for his work in Christ. That's what we offer as a sacrifice to the Lord today. We offer praise and thanksgiving. A significant part of the sacrifice we offer, it's the one that determines our destiny. We're focused on God who shapes us, fulfills our human nature. We gather together to praise God. This is the main thing we are doing on a weekly basis. We're getting together to exalt God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. To put this more explicitly, I want to hear this here, maybe you can hear this. Worship is the first duty of the church, not service projects. Not really evangelism, not really pastoral care, not counseling, uh, not helping the poor. The first thing we none of these things are bad, they're not wrong, but the first thing we're gathered to do is to worship Almighty God. And if we miss that, all the other stuff is going to go wrong. So I want us to begin here with worship. So let's, uh, this is the primary thing. Maybe you've, uh, some of you memorized the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's actually quite lovely. The chief purpose of you as a human being is to glorify the God who made you and to enjoy him forever. Not to like be a slave to him forever. Not to be, I don't know, under his thumb forever, but to enjoy. Have you thought about that? What would it mean to enjoy God. What a great, I love the word enjoy. So I just want to sit with it for a while. I encourage you to do the same. Enjoy. Yeah. Enjoy the presence of God. We are made for this. We're made. For worship, In a way, we are made out of the earth. We're drawn out of the earth, created by God, given life, so that we can observe and see and taste and hear and eat of the world and convert it into praise of the Almighty. We are worshiping machines. That's what you're made to do. And in worship, we get a taste of heaven, right? I'm sorry, folks, if you don't like sung worship, I have bad news for you. There's song worship in heaven, a lot of it. Some of it doesn't go away, right? You thought repeating songs here was boring? No, 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 I don't, okay. Be all the best music in the world. But it's heaven practice, isn't it? When we get together and worship God, we're t- getting a taste of what's coming. We're bringing a bit of heaven down to earth. We're exposing the world to the glory of God in this place. And worship is also reorienting ourselves, right? We all get, I get confused, don't you? I get lost and messed up. Don't you read the news in despair? Don't you get in fights with your family and think, this is awful? What's going on here? Aren't you frustrated by life and the world and the things happening around you? But in this place, you have an opportunity to come together and see God and enjoy Him and say, no, this retasks who I am. I'm meant to be different. Worship is transformative in that way. So, worship gives us a heavenly mind- mindset and focuses our distracted minds on God's kingdom. This still may leave some questions, like, what is praise, though? Isn't praise a kind of weird phrase? I think it's a bit odd. I think it's odd, anyway. Uh, so, how do we do this? And I'm gonna, uh, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about a book that C.S. Lewis wrote, or a section of a book he wrote, called Reflections on the Psalms. And he raises a question because he's troubled by the language of praise. Isn't it selfish for God to command praise for himself? Like, if you or I do that, like, praise me, please, praise, please, praise me. Praise me now, praise me for my great qualities and my glorious physique, right? Praise me for my, my full beard and balding. I mean, what would I say? Like, it's, isn't it odd? And it seems strange. And here's what Lewis writes in Reflections on the Psalms. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. Lewis is right. There's something about praise that seems out of, out of character with what we know about God and what we think about Praise. He demands praise, and this appears to be selfish. But Lewis has a solution to this that I think is incredibly compelling, and I want to take a few minutes to highlight this for us. So um, first, first part of his solution is this. Praise is the natural activity of a person aware of God. Praise is the natural activity of a person aware of God. Um, When you see something beautiful, it's right to talk about it being beautiful. When you see something marvelous, it's good to talk about something marvelous. If you've watched, I can't think of any bright examples of them. If you've, been, if you've all been there for the sporting event where the, goal, the great goal happens at the last minute, it's awesome to talk about that moment together. We praise things that are praiseworthy. And that's the right and natural thing to do for anything that is praiseworthy. And not to praise it, in fact, shows a lack of awareness or shows ignorance, or shows tone deafness, or even stupidity. Praise ought to arise naturally out of our hearts because we've seen something praiseworthy. Here's what Lewis says. God does not deserve our praise like a student deserves a high mark. Rather, Rather, praise is the proper response of the heart. And here's the quote. Admiration is the correct, adequate, or appropriate response to it. And that if we do not admire, we shall be stupid, insensible, and great losers. We shall have missed something. If you're not praising when you're supposed to praise, you're missing out. And it's because you're just dumb to it. And that's tragic. That's partly what Lewis, he's not saying you're an idiot. He's saying it's tragic to have missed out. So, uh, second then, second part of Lewis's argument, praise is fundamentally a matter of attention. It's a matter of our attention. If we uh, praise God properly, it's because we've been looking at him, because we've noticed him. So let me quote Lewis again from this. He says, God is that object to admire which, or if you like to appreciate which, is simply to be awake. In other words, if you admire him, you're just alert to have entered the real world, not to appreciate which is to have lost the greatest experience, and in the end to have lost all. The incomplete and crippled lives of those who are tone deaf, who have never been in love, never known true friendship, never cared for a good book, never enjoyed the feel of the morning air on their cheeks, never, I am one of these, enjoyed football, are faint images of it. Have you thought about the sadness of someone who's tone deaf and their inability to appreciate great music? Isn't that sad? Have you thought about people... Now, this is it's no one's fault that they're colorblind. Have you thought about people who are colorblind walking through art museums... Isn't that sad? Aren't they missing something? Something vital and vibrant and living? And if we were to miss out because we weren't paying attention on the God of the universe and his glory and grace and kindness and goodness, isn't that tragic as well? So praise uh, comes out of these things, and praise is this matter of attention, the ability to attend. And then third, and finally from Lewis's argument, praise always invites us into community. You know, it's one thing to stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Uh, some of you have done this. You stood at the edge of the... Maybe you don't stand too close to the edge of the Grand Canyon. But you stood uh, near the edge of the Grand Canyon. It comes out of nowhere, right? You come up out of Flagstaff, and you're driving, and there's just, it's flat, and there's nothing there. And then suddenly, giant hole. It's massive, massive hole. And you go, oh, my word. And you think about some of the first people who came across it and how they felt like, now what do we do? How do we get across this thing? But... Uh, You stand there and you look at it and it's awe-inspiring and jaw-dropping and amazing and a sense of your smallness and the greatness of the whole. And the only thing that makes it better is if you have someone next to you to share the view with. Did you see that too? Wow. Uh, We were driving out, um, I was driving in Southern California um, for a wedding years ago now. And uh, it was night and we were on dark, squirrely roads in the middle of SoCal. And up in the sky there was like strange lights flying across us and then exploding and then pieces of it falling and we stopped our car there were four of us and we stood in wonder saying what is this thing and one of our people was a photographer she got her camera out just snapped all these photos and was ready to edit them and submit and it was a SpaceX launch we didn't know it at the time right we got to witness in the night sky But if I'd seen it alone, I would have said, wow, but I saw it with my friends, and the praise was increased, because praise draws us into community. Lewis again, just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. If you really care about it, you invite other people to join you in. And the praise of God invites us to share that praise together as a community. We're looking at him together. So, briefly, what does it mean to praise? Well, it means to look at God, to look well at God, and look with me at God. Let's look together and see him and celebrate these things. And that's what we gather weekly for worship to do. We do this together. Praise is the word we use for our studied attention to the divine, Our heart's right and proper response to the things we see and experience about God. So how do we do this at NSA? Well, there's kind of three parts we have. Three basic parts to our worship. And the first part is that we praise God through song. We praise God through song. We sing to uplift the Lord. Um, I worked through these psalms. I spent some time thinking about the psalms. And looking at where the Psalms are. And um, if you go through and type, if you Google the words, if you go to your Bible, online Bible, and you look for sing praises, uh, you're going to get hundreds of responses, and most of them come from the Psalms. It's magnificent to read through all the places. But one of my favorites I came across uh, was Psalm 27. I encourage you to look with me at this for a moment. And I, I always try to read a little more Scripture to give you context. Psalm 27, beginning at verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, in spite of this I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle, in the secret place of his tent he will hide me, he will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. We'll rejoice, and we'll sing, and we'll uplift him. So what does this mean for us? Well, it's, you know, it's kind of one thing for me just to talk about God uh, and for you to listen. This is a thing where I speak and you receive, right? You're, you're supposed to, I mean, you're hopefully you're thinking, you're not just passive listeners just sitting in the wash of whatever it is I'm saying, uh, but you're receiving something in this. But it's another thing for you to sing truth to yourself. Remember that one way you're singing is to God, another way you're singing is to yourself. Like, you probably need to hear this as much as maybe he does, and maybe not just you, but maybe your neighbor needs to hear it too. Uh, singing is you give, you're turning the breath that God has given you as a gift back into an offering of praise to him. It's profound. You're training the muscle memory of your body to remember these words, uh, these songs, you're going to forget the scriptures you've memorized, but you're going to remember the songs you've memorized. Uh, they get trapped in you in a way. They become part of you, which is why we have to sing Good songs. So we sing them when we're happy. We sing and listen to music when we're sad. Uh, singing is part of the natural response of emotionally attuned people, and we want to be emotionally rich people before God. And we're training our hearts to respond rightly to God. Sometimes you're going to feel it, and sometimes you're not going to feel it. We still do it. Remember what Job says? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. How, how does that work? Well, you've got to practice it. And Job, I proposed to you, Job practiced praising God before it got hard so that he knew how to do it at that time. And we have to practice it as well together. You should know that I've given three rule sets for worship here at our church, three basic rule sets uh, for when we're picking songs. One, they have, they have to have good words, right? Good words, good theology. Two, the song has to be singable, has to be a good tune, right? Good words, good song. If it's good words and a crummy tune, eh, it's no good. If it's a great tune and the words are rough, eh, forget it, right? So good words, good tunes. And third thing is that we have to pull from the whole storehouse of God's worship, right? We can't get locked into one style or one genre, or at least like we can only, our our songbook only comes from the last five years of church music. We have a 1,000-year-old songbook of church music, and I want us to be pulling from the old as well as the new. Three rules, good words, good tunes, old as well as new. And those are the rules, the the things that I've given to Olivier and to our worship teams as they plan their worship sets. Second thing we do for worship is we worship through the Word. Obviously, we're in that portion of our service right now. This is the sermon portion of the worship. And sermons are kind of weird. We don't really, you know, there's a time when people used to, like, travel around listening to sermons. They didn't have as much TV then, so this is the most interesting part of their week, Right. Uh, And so how things have changed. Uh, But uh, when the reformers were defining the church, it was interesting. Uh, The reformers, Martin Luther and them, they had to define what made the church. They had two criteria for what made a church a church. They said where the sacraments are rightly administered, like this, and where the word is rightly preached. Those are the two things that make a church a church. It was an interesting thing. So uh, the preaching of the word became a very central aspect of what it is to to be and be part of the church. So what is a sermon? It's a weird thing. It's a special talk about God that draws people to God. That's what it's supposed to do. And how is it different from teaching? And that, that's a tough question to answer sometimes, especially for someone like me who has teaching gifts as well. Uh, but if I'm teaching you, I want to inform you. I want to enrich your mind. I want to help your thinking. And I, I, don't, I don't sacrifice those gifts. Those things don't lay aside. But in the sermon, I want to move you. And I don't want to move you so you become like me. I want to move you so that you become in some ways, more like God. Move you to take steps either in faith toward Him or in obedience toward Him or in greater sacrifice toward Him. But the purpose of the sermon is that it's an address that, it, that wants people to move. I think that's one of the key differences between, for example, preaching and teaching. And so each week, we have a sermon. We have a word from the Word of God encouraging you in your journey towards Christ-likeness. To exalt him, And, of course, the third thing we do in our worship service is we praise God with our lives. We praise Him with song, we praise Him through the Word of God, and we praise Him with our lives. Look with me at Romans 12, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Present your bodies as the sacrifice. Your bodies as the sacrifice. Ooh, that's changed, hasn't it? acceptable to God which is your spiritual should be reasonable service of worship and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect now hang on we no longer offer animals as sacrifices now we offer ourselves except it's not a blood sacrifice of ourselves it's that we are offering ourselves to be transformed into people of God who can represent God in his world uh, who was it said many years ago, the problem with being, uh, being uh, the living sacrifice is that you're always trying to squirm off the altar. Yeah. We're always trying to get out from it, aren't we? Always trying to get out from that moment of really offering ourselves to the service of God. But you need to hear that we are ultimately the sacrifice, our lives, our thoughts, our responses, our everything. And so the final aspect of our worship is that we, having been consecrated, go and live as God's people. And now worship becomes the whole of life. And what we sing, and what we speak, and what we pray, and what we gather, and how we fellowship, all these things serve to make us holy sacrifices for the sake of God and for His kingdom. And there is no more perfect segue into the meal of communion for us today. And I want to say a couple things about it, and then actually I'm going to invite our servers to come and begin to get themselves ready. So let me say a couple things about this. First is, is what does this represent? Yeah, come, come. Um, we have one loaf, which represents the unity of us as a people. I mean, we have it's one loaf is the idea It's right. Um. Um, when we take of this, we're eating it together, and it means that we are participants in the work of Christ. Sharing the meal makes us one. This is part of what's so important about this meal. If you take of this bread and of this, um, this juice, it says that you are a claimant to Christ's sacrifice. Christ was the last blood sacrifice. Right? He's it. He ends it. But if you become partakers of the bread and of the wine, that means that you're saying, no, I claim the sacrifice as applying to me. Right? I own it in that way. If you take this, you're saying that I am an adherent of the teachings of Jesus. <laughs> I identify with him and with his teachings and what he wants to do in the world. If you claim this, you're saying that I'm a citizen of his kingdom. I belong to him and what he's doing in the world. And when we take this, we're also saying that we are worshipers of his majesty. So I leave that with you. And I leave that in your hearts and minds as you consider what you're doing when you come forward to say, no, I'm taking this because I am part of this. I am the sacrifice to be made holy, to glorify him today. So our Lord, when he was betrayed, the night he was betrayed, took bread. He broke it and gave his disciples and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. He took the cup. He says, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. As often as you drink this, you do this in remembrance of me. And in this way, his sacrifice becomes efficacious for us. Some instructions. Um, our, I need our worshipers to also come take their place. I'm sorry, I should have called them forward as well. <clears throat> um, what's going to happen is uh, you're going to come forward as you're ready. And the person with the bread is going to tear off a piece of the bread, hand it to you and say, this is the body of Christ given for you. And then you'll take the bread and you're going to dip it in the cup, you know, the bread, but not your fingers. And you can take that, uh, and then the person with the cup will say, this is the blood of Christ, which is poured out for you, and you can eat it uh, right away. Uh, if you're not ready to take this meal, or you're not certain uh, about the life of Christ in you, you can still come forward, you put your arms over your chest like this, and we'll bless you. We'll say a prayer. Uh, two more things. If you've got mobility issues, we'll come to you. Okay, We'll come and serve you where you are. And lastly, if you have, uh, if you have wheat concerns, uh, we have some Uh, We have some gluten-free crackers and a separate cup here at the center aisle, and I encourage you to come down this way. Okay, So let me pray, we'll have some music, and we'll take this feast together. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for who you are and the work you've done. I thank you, Lord, that you are the last sacrifice. I thank you that you died and came to life to transform our world. And I pray that you transform us today. Sanctify this bread and this juice to be a holy meal, to make us one as your people, to draw us afresh into your kingdom world, that we glorify you and you glorify yourself in us to transform this place. I pray these things in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.